Section 10 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Eleonora of Castile, Part 2. The unsettled state of Wales needed the constant presence of King Edward to keep the spirit of the people, and Queen Eleonora, who had followed him in all his Welsh campaigns, kept her court at Rudland Castle in the summer of 1283. Here her sixth daughter, the Princess Isabella, was born a native of Wales. Early in spring 1284, Edward carried his queen to his newly built castle of Carnarvon, a stronghold he had just finished, to awe the insurgents of the principality. This truly royal fortress, according to the antiquary pennant, appears at present, in its external state, precisely as when Queen Eleonora first entered the stupendous gateway so many centuries ago. The walls are studded with defensive round towers. They have two principal gates, the east facing the Snowdon Mountains, the west commanding the Menai. The entrance to the castle is very stately, beneath a noble tower, on the front of which appears the statue of great Edward, finely carved from the life, drawing a dagger with a stern air, as if menacing his unwilling subjects. This entrance had four portcullises, and every requisite of strength. To this mighty castle Edward brought Eleonora, at a time when her situation promised an increase to the royal family. The Eagle Tower, through whose gate the affectionate Eleonora entered, is at a prodigious height from the ground, at the farthest end, and could only be approached by a drawbridge, supported on masses of opposing rock. Everyone who beholds it is struck with its grand position. It is still, by the tradition of the district, called Queen Eleanor's Gate, nor was the Eagle Tower and airy by any means too lofty, for the security of the royal Eleanora and her expected infant, since most of the Snowdon barons still held out, and the rest of the principality was fiercely chafing at the English curb. This consideration justifies the tradition, which points out a little dark den, built in the thickness of the walls, as the chamber where the faithful queen gave birth to her son Edward. The chamber is twelve feet in length, and eight in breadth, and is without a fireplace. Its discomforts were somewhat modified by hangings of tapestry, of which some marks of tenters still appear in the walls. Queen Eleonora was the first person who used tapestry as garniture for walls, in England, and she never needed it more than in her dreary lying-in chamber at Carnarvon. The prince was born April 25th, when fires were not indispensable in a small closed chamber. As a soldier's wife, used to attend her lord in all campaigns, from Syria to Scotland, the queen had, in all probability, met with far worse accommodations than in the forlorn chamber in the Eagle Tower. The queen certainly provided a Welsh nurse for her infant. She thus proved her usual good sense by complying with the prejudices of the country. Edward I was at Rudland Castle, negotiating with the despairing magnates of Wales, when news was brought him, by Griffith Lloyd, a Welsh gentleman, that the queen had made him a father of a living son of surpassing beauty. The king was transported with joy. He knighted the Welshman on the spot, 
and made him a magnificent donation of lands. The king hastened directly to Carnarvon, to see his Eleonora and her boy, and three days after, the castle was the rendezvous of all the chiefs of North Wales, who met to tender their final submission to Edward I, and to implore him, as their lord paramount, to appoint them a prince who was a native of their own country, and whose native tongue was neither French nor Saxon, which they assured him they could not understand. Edward told them he would immediately appoint them a prince, who could speak neither English nor French. The Welsh magnates, expecting he was a kinsman of their own royal line, declared they would instantly accept him as their prince, if his character was void of reproach. Whereupon the king ordered his infant son to be brought in and presented to them, assuring the assembly that he was just born a native of their country, that his character was unimpeached, that he could not speak a word of English or French, and that, if they pleased, the first words he uttered should be Welsh. The fierce mountaineers little expected such a ruler. They had, however, no alternative but submission, and, with as good a grace as they might, kissed the tiny hand which was to sway their scepter, and vowed fealty to the babe of the faithful Eleonora. The queen soon changed her residence to her magnificent palace of Conway Castle, where all the elegances of an age, further advanced in luxury than is generally supposed, were assembled round her. Many traces of her abode at Conway exist. Among others, her state bedchamber retains some richness of ornament. It opens on a terrace commanding a beautiful view. Leading from the chamber is an arch recess, called by tradition Queen Eleonora's Oriel. It is raised by steps from the floor, and beautifully adorned with painted glass windows. Here the Queen of England, during her levy or rising, sat to receive the ladies qualified to be presented to her, while her tire-woman combed and braided those long tresses, which are the glory of a Spanish donna, and which her statues show Eleonora of Castile to have possessed. A poem contemporary with this queen minutely describes these state toilet places. In her oriel there she was, closed well with royal glass, filled it was with imagery, every window by and by. The August following the birth of Prince Edward saw the death of Prince Alfonso, the heir of England, an event which deeply afflicted his mother. The same year brought calamity to her brother, King Alfonso X of Castile. This great prince was the most extraordinary person of his time, but wrapping himself up in his mathematical studies, in the latter part of his reign, his son, Sancho the Brave, deposed him. This event was a source of great grief to Eleonora, for her royal brother was tenderly beloved by her. She had named her favorite child after him, and now, in his reverse of fortune, she urged her royal lord to interfere with her nephew Sancho, for the restoration of her brother. This interposition was in vain, for the learned Alfonso died in confinement. The death of King Alexander of Scotland, in 1285, opened a new prospect for still further aggrandizing the progeny of Queen Eleonora. The heiress of Scotland, the Princess Margaret of Norway, great-niece of Edward I, was, by the consent of the nobles of Scotland, solemnly betrothed to Edward of Carnarvon, Prince of Wales, and every prospect appeared that the island crowns would be happily united, in the persons of the infant son of Eleonora and the little Queen of Scotland. After this pacification of the whole island, the king and queen resided three years in Aquitaine. 
Eleonora then gave birth to her seventh and eighth daughters, the princesses Beatrice and Berengaria. When the queen returned to England, she was urged to devote her fourth daughter, the princess Mary, to the cloister. Her reluctance to relinquish this child is noted by most chroniclers, and produced more than one pathetic epistle from dignitaries of the church, on the impropriety of withholding from heaven a chosen lamb from her numerous flock. Among the other admirable qualities of Eleonora, we find freedom from the prejudices of her era. She kept a happy medium between the bold infidelity of her philosophic brother, Alfonso, the mathematician, and the superfluous devotion of the Middle Ages. The Princess Mary was, however, veiled, at the age of ten years, at Ambresbury, 1289. The year after her profession, the queen added a ninth daughter, the Princess Blanche, to her family. Eleonora reared and educated her numerous train of beautiful princesses in a retired angle of Westminster Palace, which was given, on account of their residence there, the appellation of the Maiden Hall. Three of the queen's elder daughters were married, or betrothed, in 1290. The princess royal, Eleonora, was affianced to Alfonso, prince of Aragon. This prince soon died after, when she married the Duke of Bar. The next sister, Joanna of Acre, in her eighteenth year, renowned for her beauty and high spirit, was married with great pomp, at the monastery of the Knights of St. John, Clerkenwell, to the premier peer of England, Gilbert the Red, Earl of Gloucester. A few weeks later, Queen Eleonora assisted at a still statelier ceremony, when her third daughter, Margaret, then fifteen, wedded at Westminster Abbey, John, the second Duke of Brabant. Our historians dwell much on the magnificence displayed at the nuptials of these princesses. A list of the plate used in the queen's household will prove that the court of Queen Eleonora had attained a considerable degree of luxury. The plate was the work of Ada, the king's goldsmith, and the description of the rich vessels furnished by this member of the goldsmith's company has been brought to light by modern research. Thirty-four pitchers of gold and silver, calculated to hold water or wine. Ten gold chalices, of the value of 140 to 292 pounds each. Ten cups of silver gilt, or silver white, some with stands of the same, or enameled. More than 100 smaller silver cups, value from 4 to 118 pounds each. Also cups of jasper, plates and dishes of silver, gold salts, alms bowls, silver hanapers or baskets, cups of benison with holy sentences wrought thereon, enameled silver jugs, adorned with the effigies of the king, in a surcoat and hood, and with two effigies of Queen Eleonora. It is generally supposed that Tom Coriate, of queer memory, introduced the use of forks from Italy, so lately as the time of James I. But our Provençal Plantagenet queens did not feed with their fingers, whatever their English subjects might do. Since in the list of Eleonora's plate occurs a pair of knives with silver sheaves enameled, with a fork of crystal and a silver fork, handled with ebony and ivory. In the list of royal valuables were likewise combs and looking-glasses of silver gilt, and a bodkin of silver, in a leather case five serpents' tongues set in a standard of silver, a royal crown set with rubies, emeralds, and great pearls, another with Indian pearls, 
and one great crown of gold, ornamented with emeralds, sapphires of the east, rubies, and large oriental pearls. This seems to have been Eleonora's state crown, used at the coronation feast. Above all, there is a gold ring with a great sapphire, wrought and set by no other hand but that of St. Dunstan. The Countess of Gloucester brought forth a beautiful boy in the spring of 1291, to the infinite joy and pleasure of her mother. Both the king and queen Eleonora welcomed this first grandchild with delight, and called his name Gilbert. The autumn of the year 1290 brought threatening clouds to the prosperity of the island kingdoms, and to the royal family of Queen Eleonora. The little queen, Margaret of Scotland, was to be sent this year from Norway to Scotland, and thence, by agreement, to the court of England, that she might be educated under the care of the admirable queen of Edward I. The bishop of St. Andrews wrote to King Edward, that a report was spread, of the young queen's death, on her homeward journey. Edward, who had already sent the Bishop of Durham and six regents, to take possession of Scotland, in the names of Edward of Carnarvon and Margaret of Norway, was startled into prompt action at these alarming tidings. He took a hasty farewell of his beloved queen, and charged her to follow him with all convenient speed. Edward had not reached the Scottish borders, when the fatal news reached him that Eleonora, the faithful companion of his life, in travelling through Lincolnshire to join him, previously to his entering Scotland, had been seized with a dangerous autumnal fever, at Herdeby, near Grantham. Ambition, at the strong call of conjugal love, for once released its grasp from the mighty heart of Edward. In comparison with Eleonora, dead or dying, the coveted crown of Scotland was nothing in his estimation. He turned southward instantly, but though he travelled with the utmost speed, he arrived too late to see her living once more. His admirable queen had expired, November 29th, at the house of a gentleman named Weston. She died, according to our calculation, in the 47th year of her age. The whole affairs of Scotland, however pressing they might be, were obliterated, for a time, from the mind of the great Edward, by the acute sorrow he suffered for the death of Eleonora nor, till he had paid the duties he considered due to her breathless clay, would he attend to the slightest temporal business. In the bitterest grief, he followed her corpse in person during thirteen days, in the progress of the royal funeral, from Grantham to Westminster. At the end of every stage, the royal buyer rested, surrounded by its attendants, in some central part of a great town, till the neighboring ecclesiastics came to meet it in solemn procession, and placed it before the high altar of the principal church. At every one of these resting places, the royal mourner vowed to erect a cross, in memory of the Shea Reina, as he passionately called his lost Eleonora. Thirteen of these splendid monuments of his affections once existed. Those of Northampton and Waltham still remain models of architectural beauty. The principal citizens of London, with their magistrates, came several miles on the north road, clad in black hoods and mourning cloaks, to meet the royal corpse and join the solemn procession. The hearse rested, previously to its admission into Westminster Abbey, at the spot now occupied by the statue of Charles I, which commanded a grand view of the abbey, the hall, and palace of Westminster. They buried Queen Eleonora at the feet of her father-in-law. Her elegant statue, reclining on an altar-shaped tomb, 
was cast in bronze by an artist patronized by Henry the Third and Edward the First. He was supposed to be the celebrated Pietro Cavallini, but his name is now certified as Torelli, otherwise called Master William, the Florentine. He built his furnace to cast the queen's statue in St. Margaret's churchyard. The munificent Edward paid Torellini 1,700 pounds for his elegant statue of the lost Eleonora. It is well worth it, for he produced a work of which any modern artist might be justly proud. We feel, while gazing upon it, that it possesses all the reality of individual resemblance. The countenance of Eleonora is serenely smiling. The delicate features are perfect, both in form and expression. The right hand held a scepter, now broken away. The left is closed over something pendant from the neck by a string, supposed to be a crucifix. Her head is crowned with a magnificent circlet, from which her hair falls in elegant waves on her shoulders. The Queen of Edward I must have been a model of feminine beauty. No wonder that the united influence of loveliness, virtue, and sweet temper should have inspired in the heart of her renowned lord an attachment so deep and true. The king endowed the Abbey of Westminster with many rich gifts, for dirges and masses to commemorate his beloved queen. Wax lights perpetually burned around her tomb till the Reformation extinguished them three hundred years afterwards, and took away the funds that kept them alight. She hath, says Fabian, two wax tapers burning upon her tomb, both day and night, which hath so continued, since the day of her burial to this present. The tomb itself is of grey Petworth marble, and is designed in a style corresponding with the rich memorial cross of Waltham, especially the lower range of the shields, on which are seen embossed the towers of Castile and the purple lions of Lyon, with the bendlets of Pontheu. Round the metal table on which the statue reposes is a verge, embossed with Saxon characters, to this effect. Here lies Alianor, wife of King Edward, formerly Queen of England, on whose soul God for pity hath grace. Amen. This is at present the sole epitaph of Eleonora of Castile. But, before the Reformation, a tablet hung near the tomb, on which were some funeral verses in Latin, with an English translation by some ancient rhymester, transcribed here, not for their beauty, but their historical character. Eleonora is here interred, a royal virtuous dame, sister unto the Spanish king, of ancient blood and fame, King Edward's wife, first of that name, and prince of Wales by right whose father Henry just the third was sure an English white. He craved his wife unto his son. The prince himself did go on that embassage luckily, himself with many mo. This knot of link marriage the king Alfonso liked, and with his sister and this prince, the marriage up was striped. The dowry rich and royal was, for such a prince most meet, for Pontheu was the marriage gift, a dowry rich and great a woman both in council-wise, religious, fruitful, meek, who did increase her husband's friends, enlarged his honor eke, learned to die. Of all the crosses raised to the memory of Eleonora of Castile by her sorrowing widower, that of Charing is the most frequently named by the inhabitants of the metropolis, although the structure itself has vanished from the face of the earth. 
Yet every time Charing Cross is mentioned, a tribute is paid unconsciously to the virtues of Edward I's beloved queen, for the appellation is derived from the king's own lips, who always spoke of her in his French dialect as the Cher Rene. Thus the words Charing Cross signify the dear queen's cross, an object that was always seen by the royal widower in his egress and regress from the palace of Westminster. This anecdote is corroborated by Edward's personal habits, who certainly, like his ancestors, spoke French in his familiar intercourse. Our sovereigns had not yet adopted English as their mother tongue. Although Edward and his father spoke English readily, yet their conversation in domestic life was chiefly carried on in French. Foreigner as she was, Eleonora of Castile entirely won the love and goodwill of her subjects. Walsingham thus sums up her character. To our nation she was a loving mother, the column and pillar of the whole realm. Therefore to her glory, the king her husband caused all those famous trophies to be erected, wherever her noble course did rest. For he loved her above all earthly creatures. She was a godly, modest, and merciful princess. The English nation in her time was not harassed by foreigners, nor the country people by the purveyors of the crown. The sorrow-stricken she consoled as became her dignity, and made them friends that were at discord. Civilization made rapid advances, under the auspices of a court, so well regulated as that of Eleonora of Castile. Wales, in particular, emerged from its state of barbarism in some degree. The manners of the Welsh were so savage, at the time when Eleonora kept her court in North Wales, that her royal lord was forced to revive an ancient Welsh law, threatening severe punishment to anyone who should strike the queen or snatch anything out of her hand. The English had little reason to pride themselves on their superiority. Although there was no danger of their beating the queen in her hall of state, they had pelted her predecessor from London Bridge. Moreover, in the commencement of the reign of Edward I, London was so ill-governed that murders were committed in the streets in noonday. Sculpture, architecture, and casting in brass and bronze were not only encouraged by King Edward and his queen, but brought to great perfection by Torelli, and native artists whom they encouraged in this country. Carving in wood, an art purely English, now richly decorated both ecclesiastical and domestic structures. Eleonora of Castile first introduced the use of tapestry as hangings for walls. It was a fashion appertaining to Moorish luxury, adopted by the Spaniards. The coldness of our climate must have made it indispensable to the fair daughter of the South, chilled with the damp stone walls of the English Gothic halls and chambers. In the preceding centuries, tapestry was solely worked to decorate altars, or to be displayed as pictorial exhibitions, in solemn commemoration of great events, like the Bayeux Tapestry of Matilda of Flanders. The robes worn by the court of Eleonora of Castile were graceful. The close undergown, or kirtle, was made high in the neck, with tight sleeves, and a train, over which an elegant robe, with full fur sleeves, was worn. The ugly goret, an imitation of the helmets of the knights, executed in white cambric or lawn, out of which was cut a visor for the face to peep through, deformed the head-tire of some of the ladies of her court, and is to be seen on the effigy, otherwise most elegant, of Aveline, Countess of Lancaster, her sister-in-law. But Eleonora had a better taste in dress. 
No gourd hides her beautiful throat and fine shoulders, but her ringlets flow on each side of her face, and fall on her neck, from under the regal diadem. The ladies of Spain are celebrated for the beauty of their hair, and we see by her statues that Eleonora did not conceal her tresses. The elegance and simplicity of the dress adopted by this lovely queen might form a model for female costume in any era. There is little more than tradition to support the assertion that to Eleonora of Castile, England owes the introduction of the famous breed of sheep, for which Cotsword has been so famous. A few of these creatures were introduced, by the care of the patriotic queen, from her native Spain, and they had increased to that degree in about half a century, that their wool became the staple riches of England. The last time the name of Eleonora of Castile appears in our national records, is in the parliamentary rolls, and from Norman French we translate the following supplication. The executors of Oliver de Ingram pray to recover before the king's auditors three hundred and fifty marks, owed by Dame Eleonora, late queen and companion to our lord, King Edward I, and the said executors show that though our lord the king had given command to have it paid, it is not yet done. Therefore they humbly crave that he will be pleased to give a new order for that same, on account of the health of the soul of the said Queen Eleonora, his companion. By this document we learn from the best authority, that creditors, in the times when Catholicism was prevalent, considered they kept a detaining hold on the souls, even of royal debtors. Moreover, in the same parliament, the poor prioress and her nuns of St. Helen, present a pathetic petition to the king, representing how earnestly they have prayed for the soul of the madam the queen, late companion of King Edward, and they hope for perpetual alms for the sustenance of their poor convent in London, in consideration of the pains they have taken. Eleonora of Castile left seven living daughters and one son. Only four of her daughters were married. Isabella, the sixth daughter of King Edward and Eleonora of Castile, was married at Ipswich, the year before her father's wedlock with Marguerite of France, to the Count of Holland. It is doubtful if the young countess ever left England, for two years afterwards her lord died, and she was left a widow, childless. She afterwards married the Earl of Hereford, Humphrey de Bohun. Another entry mentions the birth of her first child. October 30th, 1303 to Robert Le Norris, servant to the Lady Isabella, Countess of Hereford, the King's daughter, for bringing news to the Prince of Wales of the birth of her first son, twenty-six pounds, thirteen shillings, four half-pence. The Princess Royal married, after the death of her mother, the Duke of Bar. The King paid Huso de Thornville, valet of the Count of Bar, for bringing him news of the birth of her eldest son, the enormous sum of fifty pounds. But this boy was the next heir to England, after Edward of Carnarvon, as Edward I settled the succession on the daughters of Eleonora of Castile, first on the Countess of Bar and her progeny, then on Joanna of Acre, and all the seven princesses then alive, in succession. Edward I survived most of his beloved Eleonora's children. Joanna of Acre died soon after her father. The Countess of Bar preceded him to the tomb, soon after the birth of her second son, in 1298. The Countess of Hereford survived him but four years. The nun princess and the unfortunate Edward II were the only individuals that reached the term of middle life, 
out of the numerous family that Edward I had by Eleonora of Castile. End of section 10